it feels like the public sector is sometimes really rigid. And I just don't think that we can be that way, that we can continue to do that if we expect to compete in a 21st century marketplace. It's really, I think, going to take a mix of skills and training and experience. And so this this wave of, of newcomers is bringing, I think, some diversity back, not only in training, but in, in many other ways. And I think that'll just be really good for the public health 3.0 world that's emerging. One of the most important things to avert crisis is to make sure that health departments really have enough money to put the salaries at a competitive level. And we have been cutting budgets in health departments for many years and undervaluing public health as a field. And so I really believe that more um, appropriations for the vital services that public health departments provide is critical. Public health, please tell me why when I need you Hello and welcome. This is the May 2019 podcast of the American Journal of Public Health. This month, we tackle a major crisis occurring in the governmental public health workforce in state and in local health departments. With my guests, we review in three chapters what the latest Public Health Workforce Interest and Needs Survey, or PH Wins, tells us about the ongoing metamorphosis of the public health workforce. With J.P. Leider, I reviewed a massive wave of retirement that will slash a third of the workforce. With Karen DeSalvo, I discuss what needs to be done to adapt the workforce to the current needs and challenges of public health 3.0. And with Katie Sellers, we discuss how PH Wins is conducted and what it tells us about the current interest and needs of the workforce. This month, Francis Jacob decided that public health needed a lullaby or a light-hearted ballad that contrasted with the gravitas of the topics we cover each month. Francis has therefore composed, and, and Pauline Jacob is singing, an ingenuous prayer that says, Public health, look after me. Why not? Try it. You know, the moment you wake up just before you put on your makeup may work. I'm Alfredo Morabia editor-in-chief of AJPH, and we are April 1st, yes, seriously, 2019. Chapter 1, A Mutating Workforce. I'm reaching out to Jonathan Leider, J.P. Leider, who is with the Division of Health Policy and Management at the School of Public Health in the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. Here we are to talk about uh, the result of the survey uh, PH wins. And uh, something that struck me is that uh, we are heading towards a, a wave of retirement, right? Yes, absolutely. The, the silver tsunami, they call it. And so what would this imply? I mean, wh what's the magnitude, first of all, of this uh, retirement? Uh, 10, 20, 30 percent? Wh wh what is the magnitude? Sure. Well, I, I think it's important to place this in 
historical context. So even before the Great Recession, what little surveillance data we had on the workforce said we had an aging workforce, right? That we had a relatively high number of staff who were ready to retire at any moment. Um, but then the recession hits, public health at the state and local level loses something like 50,000 jobs. But we also didn't see as many retirements as we expected because so many folks had had this bad financial situation happen to them as well. And so they decide to delay retirement. So we've known for a while that the workforce is aging. We know that people are delaying retirement, but not until recently did we kind of nail that down. And we found um, through PH wins, we, we had almost 50,000 responses to it in 2017. So of, of those folks, we found 22% are planning to retire by 2023 and 41% are planning to retire or are thinking about leaving their organization in the next year. So we've got this combination of uh, general demographic trends in the U.S., right? We've got baby boomers retiring, all these delayed retirements finally happening, and then people looking for greener pastures as well. Are we about to lose all the senior layer of the public health workforce, the best trained, the most experienced? Well, I, I would say that we're not going to lose all of them, but we're going to lose, uh, we're going to lose an awful lot. So from, from the survey from WINS, um, about 7,000 managers we think are going to retire, and they'll take with them about 150,000 years of experience with them collectively. Our, our workforce is, is pretty old on average, 47, 48 years old, 27% are older than 55. So we do have an awful lot of folks, and a lot of them are managers and executives, and, and they're ready to retire and move on. But some people say that there, there is a silver lining because uh, these, uh, if I may say, you know, uh, more senior people, they are also less familiar with the new communication modes. They, they seem to be uh, less diverse than the population that they are serving. So is there replacement? Uh, could their replacement be something also positive for public health? Well, I admit it's a little hard for me to see the silver lining of a third of our workforce or, or more turning over in the next couple of years, but it does offer us an opportunity. So it offers us an opportunity in the schools and programs of public health to make sure that we're actually preparing students to go into the workforce and for public health departments to reimagine them, themselves for the 21st century. Uh, so you've got a lot of demand for nurses and data analysts and, and quant-minded people in the healthcare sector. So how do we compete with that? Well, we can recruit better. We can focus on, on retention and, and recognize that there are some places where we're probably going to have to increase salaries, that we're going to need to do more to retain staff of color. And we need to make that an emphasis, a focus. And, and if we do that, if we can improve pay competitiveness, Think about encouraging and rewarding creativity, trying to improve job satisfaction. This may well be an opportunity. So let's look at this new uh, generation that's coming. Uh, my understanding is that a uh, lot of them have uh, undergraduate degrees in public health and not uh, graduate degrees, you know, like MPH, which used to be the tradition or may have uh, characterized the people who are actually uh, retiring. Is this a problem? Well, it's definitely not a problem. I, I think it's an opportunity. So public health has historically been a degree where the master's of public health was, was the default entry, right? That, that's sort of how we've always talked about it for the last 60 years. 
But either this year or maybe next year, undergraduate degrees in public health are going to surpass master's degrees as the most awarded type in our field. So that's, you know, as I said, about 30,000 a year in total. So that means uh, pretty soon we're going to have 16, 17, 20,000 folks with undergraduate degrees in public health coming out every year. And we still have about that many master's and doctoral too. So it's, it's much more of an even split now than it ever was. So what's the difference between an undergraduate and a graduate degree, you know, when we're talking about public health workforce? Yeah, I think ever since we started to see an increase in undergraduate public health education, there's been some concern that there would be a substitution effect, right? That like we saw in education in the 90s, people would come in with bachelors and, and be able to be um, more cost effective than, than their advanced uh, colleagues, colleagues with advanced degrees, I should say. But we haven't really seen that in, in governmental public health yet. What we see instead, I think, is in, instead of a substitution effect, we're seeing people go out into the workforce just like generally you would see in, with, with somebody with a bachelor's degree. So uh, when you look at data coming from the Association of Schools and Programs of Public Health, the plurality of undergraduates are going into for-profit organizations, followed by healthcare uh, or getting a further education, and only about 11% are going into government at any level. That's, that's a little bit different than the master's degree folks who... Yes, a lot are going into uh, healthcare too, but a lot more going into nonprofits um, and, and a bit more into government. All of us someday should die. In no hurry to say goodbye. I say public health, look after me. This was chapter one where we saw how the public health workforce composition is changing. Now, let's move to Chapter 2, which is Public Health 3.0. My interviewee is Karen B. DiSalvo. She was formerly an Acting Assistant Secretary for Health at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services in D.C., and she's now currently a professor of medicine and population health at the Austin Dell Medical School at the University of Texas. Karen, I wanted to ask you about uh, this uh, public health uh, 3.0, you know. Can you tell us about the evolution of this different uh, pH uh, uh, 1.0, 2.0, 3.0? What do they mean? What do they represent? The uh, evolutions represent how public health uh, at the state and local level reinvents itself as it has to respond to new epidemiologic challenges and as it has new tools and skills available, basically. And um, the, the epi epidemiology really drove a lot of the work in each of the eras. So in 1.0, it was a time when public health ha had to focus on the principal causes of death, which were communicable disease. So it was a time when we used things like um, hyg basic hygiene, sanitation, food inspection, vaccinations, and, and had more of a public health uh, nursing sort of approach. It was very successful in extending life expectancy. The 2.0 world was focused Just on... Just a question, uh, Karen. Yeah. Karen, when, yeah. when was the time period? I mean, uh, of 1.0, early 20th 1. century? Or? Early, yes, exactly. So, so early 20th century, essentially, up until 
um, probably around the time of the 1970s, um, which is when chronic disease began to be a bigger concern in America. And then um, in, in the work of the, um, of the field of public health to professionalize itself towards the end of the 20th century, it got more codified as, um, the, as an infrastructure that would move towards accreditation and that would have some standards defined, defined, uh, originally as the essential, 10 essential public health services in that, um, National Academy report. But the, the, if you think about the work of that era of 2.0 to tackle things like cardiovascular disease and cancer and, and the, the causes of, of a chronic disease, uh, burden in the country like high blood pressure and diabetes, there was, um, massive work on things like smoking cessation, uh, or on uh, educational programs to help people understand their risk of disease and a lot of partnership with the healthcare sector to see that we could be more preemptive in diagnosing people with, with chronic disease and sort of step in and intervene. So a lot of screening and, um, uh, focus on the food supply. Um, what, what is the appropriate level of salt and sugar and food, fat and food? And, and that evolves now into a 3.0 world, which is one, um, that has started to emerge in about the last, I would say 10 to 15 years. It was certainly my experience as a health commissioner that the work that we were structured to do of 2.0 work when I became health commissioner in New Orleans wasn't going to suffice to the challenges that we were facing in our community, which were broader multi-sectoral challenges related to the social determinants of health, things like violence and housing insecurity uh, and things like uh, mental health, which is uh, certainly a purview of public health, though often requires a really multi-sectoral approach to, to deal with. And so that era requires public health to step more out of its kind of typical programmatic siloed work that focused on this kind of 2.0 epidemiology and challenges and, and start to think about, you know, working outside of the walls of the health department environment and finding strategic partners that could help uh, advance the health of the community. It's more complex work. Uh, and I think we're finding that, 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 sh- that pivot is difficult for people who have been in public health a long time, though there's, I find, a lot of excitement on the ground. I, you know, the, the 3.0 model, when we described it uh, in the report that we put out in the fall of 16 from HHS, was meant to be a reflection of the activity in the field rather than a defined effort that people should implement. It was meant to say, this is what's happening. Let's codify it. Let's find a way to support um, providers, the, the practitioners on the front line, so they can do the work that they want to do to address the new challenges in their communities. It seems as this new workforce is going to be different in the sense that uh, the older workforce had more like a graduate degrees, MPH, etc., mm-hmm. whereas the new workforce is, has uh, um, undergraduate degrees in public health. Uh, will this impact uh, the way they're going to approach this new public health? It may. Uh, you know, I, I, we've seen this big emergence of these undergraduate public health degrees. And what what some of those students are uh, articulating when they finish their undergraduate degrees, they're not sure they want to go on and do a master's, which means some of them are choosing to go to law school or other professional professional degrees that are that are graduate level after having some work experience. I think this is a tremendous opportunity for public health, if, especially if the, the uh, undergraduate 
programs make sure they not only emphasize skills, but some of the ethical and philosophical approaches and methodologies that public health uses. So make certain that it's a broad enough degree and or, um, you know, as the students are, are getting their graduate degrees, that they have sometimes an opportunity maybe to get a dual degree. But I, the point being is I love the idea of public health keeping a tradition of um, it being a set of experiences and skills, but also varied backgrounds um, in, in terms of, of more specific training. You know, public health law, as it and as an example, has done so much to advance the public's health in the country. And I think sometimes we forget that it's not just having an MPH that makes public health strong at the departmental level, that there are a lot of, of professions and backgrounds and training that will make a difference. So I think there's a real pathway and opportunity for the undergrads to, to you know, build out this multidisciplinary experience. The public health workforce is at a place where it, it knows the best strategies and methodologies to advance the public's health in a 3.0 world. It doesn't, even if it knows how to, and it starts to engage, it, it, it isn't, uh, the data is telling us that that's not rewarded in their work environment. And that would be unfortunate because that could drive away some of the, mo- the best innovation that's going to be necessary. Uh, but if they don't know how to do it, they're asking, what I read is they're asking for training and support. They want additional skills beyond what they're learning in their traditional curriculum and and want to be taught these uh, more, I'll say, meta-leadership kinds of skills uh, and the language of other sectors so they can feel more comfortable when they're out there uh, doing those kinds of multi-sectoral partnership work. So, so the support is uh, primarily a question of training. It's training. It's re, it's reward and reinforcement in the in the workplace. You haven't done this as a as a leader in a local public health department. It's very easy to reward a program when it gets its grant renewed or when it meets the milestones of the grant. It's a little more gray, or uh, and certainly has to be built into the performance reward system of a health department to recognize quality improvement or um, movement towards accreditation or uh, community partnerships. So on our dashboard, for example, in New Orleans, uh, I added added that we wanted as a department to make relationships with other agencies within city government and with external partners. And we tracked on that. And I rewarded the department broadly for for that kind of work, not just we had a, a coffee together, but we began to build a relationship that, that made an impact in an important area like public safety uh, or mental health services or, or food and nutrition. And, and that, that's a way that you, you signal to the, the workforce. It's not just um, something I want you to do on the side. It's central to what I'm tracking on as a leader about what we think is important because that's the way we move the community forward. So this is a, it, it's not just about training. It's about the way that we operate, um, it has to be built into that operational model of health departments to reward and recognize innovation, creativity, strategic thinking, community relationships, so all those things that are necessary in a 3.0 world. Now, chapter three, PH wins. 
What is it and what does it teach us? The first author of the main essay in the May issue of AJPH is Katie Sellers. She is Vice President for Impact at the De Beaumont Foundation in Bethesda. What's the impact of PH wins? Well, <laughs> I, um, I have seen it have quite an impact in the field. I haven't done any kind of rigorous study to evaluate the impact of it. Um, but what I've seen is that health departments now have data that show where their employees are in terms of what skills they have, what skills they need, what their morale is like, what their plans are in terms of leaving, how aware they are um, of sort of key emerging concepts. And I've also seen the PH wins framework and data be used in a lot of different ways around the country. Um, I would say one of the most important examples is that HRSA, the Health Resources and Services Administration, part of Health and Human Services at the federal level, um, used the PH wins framework in their recent funding announcement for the regional public health training centers. So they are now basing their trainings on the strategic skills that are assessed in PH wins, and they are also using PH wins for an assessment nationwide so health departments compare themselves to their um, peers nationally. And so, uh, Katie, what's the size of that uh, workforce that you wanted to, uh, to know better and describe in terms of number of people? Yeah, so we ultimately decided to focus on the state and local workforce, excluding the federal workforce. So we, um, the state health agency workforce is about 100,000. The local government workforce is about 150,000. But there's about 50,000 people in there who are being counted by both because they work at a local health department, which is actually run by the state health department. And these 200,000 people, they are located in how many uh, uh, institutions? Yeah, I would say it's about um, 50 state health departments, of course, and uh, around 3,000 local health departments. Ultimately, we sent about 100,000 invitations to individual workers, and we wound up with almost 48,000 responses. So it was about a 48% response. Okay, and so were you satisfied about the representativity of this uh, 48%? Yes, we were. Um, we, we were aiming for the survey to be representative at the, uh, of local health departments at the regional level. So we achieved that um, with the exception of regions one and two. It's really only representative if you look at those regions combined. But certainly at the national level, it is representative, and um, we were quite pleased. And so what struck you the most when you saw these results? You, you knew the result from 2014, you see 2017, and you said, wow, that's something going on here. What was going on? No, I think the most striking thing had to do with just the sheer numbers of people who are considering leaving the organization they work for. So we knew that a lot of people in 2014 were considering retiring. 
I think it turned out that because of the recession and other reasons, a number of those folks delayed their retirement. So then when we look at 2017, there's even more people planning to retire. But there was also an increase among people who were just thinking about leaving in the next year and were nowhere near retirement age. Um, and so we saw overall, if you combine people who are planning to leave for, for retirement versus planning to leave for another reason, we saw a 41% increase in the number of people planning to leave. And it had been high in 2014. So it's now up to almost half of the workforce really considering leaving their organization. And so there is no new blood coming. There are, there are new new generations interested in public health who will, you know, occupy those positions. Well, there is some new blood that's interested. Um, one thing we did see between 2014 and 2017 is that the average age of the workforce actually went down. So, of course, people who were captured in both surveys got older over those three years. But despite that, um, the average age went down because of the new people coming in. Um, but one of the unfortunate things we see is that a lot of the intent to leave is among those newer people, those younger people. So it's a mix. What we learned from these people um, when we asked, we asked the ones who said they were intending to leave, what were the top reasons they were intending to leave? And a lot of them cited pay. Um, but a lot of them also said that the opportunities for advancement um, were not optimal. Um, they also cited the workplace environment. So, yes, I do think there are things that are difficult about the workplace environment that are making some people want to leave. But I do think there are creative opportunities to give people more responsibility and to acknowledge a, a greater leadership role in small step that would allow younger people to feel like they are on that track of advancement and they are learning and they are taking on more responsibility. Doctor, please don't run away. He's my pain, heal my day. At the end of these interviews, it looks like the crisis ahead is really serious, but not desperate. I retain three aspects of this crisis. First, there is an ongoing hemorrhage of senior public health professionals, which means a tremendous loss of experience and know-how. But this impending loss of more senior public health professionals will bring many openings for positions in public health which can be occupied by a younger workforce more in tune with the new modes of communication. But this new workforce still needs training and therefore it could become the vector of public health 3.0 as it develops the expertise to address the structural, social, behavioral, and environmental determinants of health. Second, 
The wave of undergraduate public health degrees is unlikely to replace the graduate degrees like the MPH as a means to make a career in public health. But these undergraduate degrees are likely to give a public health culture to a new generation of lawyers, doctors, engineers, and so on, who will have had public health as a bachelor's degree major. Third and finally, to keep a vibrant workforce, state and local health departments need to be competitive in terms of salary. They need to be supportive of the sense of mission of their workforce, and they need to reward creativity and new initiatives. I'm grateful to all my interviewees for their time and willingness to share their ideas. I also thank Emily D'Agostino for assisting me with the production of the podcast. Thank you also to Michael Costanza for comments and edits on an earlier version of the podcast. Francis Jacob wrote and played the lighthearted prayer, which is sung by Pauline Jacob, public health look out for me this is alfredo morabia at ajph for more podcasts including podcasts in chinese and spanish visit us at ajph.org or subscribe to it on android or iphone podcast app on itunes on soundcloud on stitcher or on any other podcast app that's it thank you for listening